Hey out there, Making Contact listener. You know, we're not just on the radio these days. You can connect with us on social media. Let us know what topics you want to hear about in our upcoming shows so we can make them better. And keep us doing what we're doing with donations of any size, big or small. Radioproject.org is the place. Thanks. And here comes the show. I'm Jasmine Lopez, and this is Making Contact. From the Fight for 15 campaign to the Syrian refugee crisis, the past year was full of news headlines that were tough to keep up with. Making Contact is committed to in-depth critical analysis that goes beyond the breaking news. On this edition of Making Contact, we're going to take a look at shows that we produced in 2015, and we'll find out what's happened since. We begin by listening to a clip from Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza on the origins of a movement. We are organized in 23 cities, and those are the ones that we know about, that we're in contact with. But certainly we get emails and imagery and inquiries every day from folks in Colombia, from folks in Palestine, in Spain, in London, Japan, France, everywhere you can think of, where black people are struggling to be free. The political conditions that we live in today are such that every 28 hours, according to the Malcolm X grassroots movement and their report called Operation Ghetto Storm, every 28 hours in this country, a black person, man, woman, child, or somewhere in between, is murdered by vigilantes, police officers, or security guards. Now, we've heard critiques. People say, well, I want to understand what's the methodology by which you came up with those statistics. And we say, well, if our own government collected data as to who is killing black people in this country and what is the rate at which we are being killed and why, then maybe we would have some different statistics with better methodology, but I would assume that it might actually be a much higher rate. You are listening to Making Contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. We're looking back at 2015 this week and probably the most significant movement for change in the U.S. at least, although it officially began in 2014, you could say, is Black Lives Matter. Joining me now to discuss the past year is Kat Brooks, She's co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project and part of Black Lives Matter in the San Francisco Bay Area. Kat, welcome to Making Contact. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with the, the personal and a recent development. You are a member of a group that's become known as the Black Friday 14, who chained yourselves to the BART train and stopped up the system for several hours on the day after Thanksgiving back in 2014. And the charges against all 14 of you were just recently dropped. Um, so coming a year after the actual incident, uh, what's the significance of that? I think the significance is that when community stands up and speaks, right, and makes demands of power, that power does have to relent. And that's a message that we hope, you know, organizing groups across the country take, is that we're putting our bodies on the line for um, a real reason. We're putting our bodies on our line to demand an end to the war on black lives. Um, and that's by any means necessary. And... Um, the state really sought to really single us out as black organizers and punish us for this move, but because of the groundswell of community support, they were forced to drop the charges. 
And one thing I think the charges being dropped did uh, another thing was to bring the movement back into the headlines. Uh, at least from my standpoint, I feel like there's been sort of an ebb and flow over the past year in terms of media coverage, not only here in the Bay Area, but across the country. Um, what's your assessment of media coverage of the movement? Um, and perhaps more importantly, do you think the way the press has reported on issues related to black people has changed at all? Um, as that is part of the societal transformation that Black Lives Matter is advocating for. Is that reframing happening? Not as quickly or dr as dramatically as I think it needs to. Um, I think one of the best examples of that is if you look at the way um, black people are spoken of or demonized by the media immediately following, right, an officer-involved shooting. So still leading with someone who had a criminal history from 15 years ago or suspected stabbing suspect, da 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 da, da right? So this pattern of the police kill somebody, the media demonizes them, it is still continuing and continuing pretty intensively. What has changed is that these officer-involved shootings are much more in the media now, right? So it could have been possible for people to be shot and killed um, in this country, and nobody here peep about it, but because of the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the strong organizing that's happening across the country, I feel like the media is responding by at least talking about the issue. Yeah, and there have been uh, lots of promises of change and some concrete actions. Some officers have been suspended, and, and even some police chiefs have been fired, most recently in Chicago. Um, so is the system changing, um, and, and has the way most Americans view law enforcement evolved over the past year? I think the wheels of change are turning slowly, right, really slowly. I mean, we have to look, that, look at the fact that just here in the Bay Area, we had two officer-involved shootings within a month of each other, right? You had Richard Perkins in Oakland, and then, of course, what's made national news is the murder of Mario Woods in San Francisco, um, and still have the nerve of the state and, and, and some people, right, pushing back on the narrative of even calling it murder. You still see, well, he this, or well, he that, or well, he this, right? It's, it's as if we're we're still having to prove that, no, that there's this war being waged on black lives. And I think we no longer have to uh, uh, prove that. Um, when people aren't talking about having debates and hearing from both sides around this issue, there is no two sides around this issue, right? There's black people being gunned down in the streets like animals and people that sit in, in seats of power that need to do something about it. Um, if there was any really significant change, Greg Sher would be fired right now. Right now, he lied to the public. It's been proven that he lied to the public, right? But he's still sitting in office, and it's still going to take... Um, and, and Greg Scher is the San Francisco... Sorry. Yes, Chief Greg Scher of the San Francisco Police Department, um, who, you know, when Mario was murdered, like, he came out and said, you know, it's because he lunged at police, and we've seen from the video being played over and over again, that's just not accurate. So I think that it's still going to take enormous amounts of energy and organizing for us to really see the change that, that we want. That said, I did just read an article the other day that said the way that Americans are looking at police and policing is, is changing some. And I do think that that's true. I think that very slowly the general public is starting to feel like this is a little crazy, right? That at this point, every other day we're hearing about somebody else being gunned down by police, and not all those people could have possibly been a justified shoot. And what about as an organizer? Um, how do you think Black Lives Matter has changed the way you or other people organize, particularly organize other black people? Uh, there was an amazing energy in those first few months, and I know it brought a lot of new people out to the streets, to meetings, and so on. Have a lot of those people stuck with it? And have you learned anything about how to create and sustain a movement for change? 
my experience, at least here in the Bay Area, is that those people that came out initially have stuck with it, right? I mean, people do have lives and have to feed their families, so people's um, engagement may vary at different points in time, but they're here, right? They're here and they're ready to come out. Um, I think what Black Lives Matter has done for the black community in particular is instill this huge amount of love for self and for each other. And we haven't seen that really since the Black Panther Party was talking about black pride, right? Um, and really we've seen the state work very hard at creating um, division and um, paranoia and mistrust inside of the black community. And so I think um, that for me has been the biggest contribution around this period of time and that that is the glue that is helping to hold people together and will continue to hold people together as we continue to struggle. Kat Brooks is co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project and part of Black Lives Matter here in the Bay Area. Kat, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Back in April, Andrew Stelzer also brought us BP Five Years Later, Deepwater Horizon, and the Cost of Oil. We followed BP's trail from the bayous of Louisiana to the fine art galleries of London. Reporter Anna Simonton takes us down to southern Louisiana, where the Homa people have been battling BP and an entire oil industry for decades. The Tribal Council applied for $160,000 so they could have the staff and resources necessary to help thousands of Homa members file claims for lost income, health effects, and environmental damages. And finally we got a notice in the mail and said, look, although we respect and cherish the relationship we have, uh, we can't do nothing for you because you're not fairly recognized. As a result, Dardar says a lot of the Homa Nation's 17,000 members got a bad deal and took BP's one-time offer of $25,000. The irony here is that oil companies themselves are partly to blame for the fact that the Homa aren't federally recognized. It was called the uh, Louisiana Land and Exploration Company. And this is a big, you know, oil interest. Mark Miller is a history professor at Southern Utah University who has published two books about the federal acknowledgement process. In 1990, while the Homa's petition was first pending, several Louisiana congressmen introduced bills in both the U.S. House and Senate to afford the tribe federal recognition without having to go through the BIA. In his research, Miller discovered that the Louisiana Land and Exploration Company fought hard against the legislation. You know, I found a whole, you know, folder of documentation where they were challenging the validity of the Homa Indians, both as they said they were never a tribe, which is one facet, but then they, I, I found they were calling them the so-called Homa Indians, you know, in those documents. They also made it really clear to these congressmen and also the federal government that they were reviewing the the petition material from the, the UHN. And they were taking depositions to challenge their identity, and they were you know, really raising the stakes. The pressure worked. Both bills died in committee. Six years later, Congressman Billy Tozen reintroduced his HOMA Recognition Act, only this time it came with a long list of exemptions that prevented the tribe from claiming land rights that would conflict with oil company interests. Even that bill didn't go anywhere. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, Tozen received more than $600,000 in donations from the oil and gas industry, and that doesn't include his first nine years in office. 
After leaving office in 2005, Tozen became a lobbyist for a firm hired by ConocoPhillips, which had by that time acquired the Louisiana Land and Exploration Company as a subsidiary. ConocoPhillips paid Tozen's firm $1 million for its services. The firm also lists BP as a long-standing client. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. Go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Welcome back to Making Contact. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Earlier this year, we interviewed oil industry expert, analyst, and author Antonia Yuhaz about the state of the Gulf Coast five years after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Here's Making Contact's Laura Flynn revisiting Antonia. You were just at the climate conference, the UN climate conference. Can you um, tell us a bit about what stood out to you the most at the conference? There were several um, historical records broken, and I think the most significant is that over a million people in 175 cities marched demanding immediate climate action, the largest um, such action or, or march in history for climate action, which is related to the next historical marker, which was for the first time 150 world leaders. Um, that's the largest number that have ever been in one spot, came together to announce their intention to sign a global climate accord. And 13 days later, they did that. Every country um, submitted climate plans, individual country climate plans on how they would reduce greenhouse gas emissions, or at least the theory was that it was how they would reduce greenhouse gas emissions in their country. Um, And the agreement legally binds um, every signatory, so that's about 200 countries, to submit climate plans and have them reviewed every five years. It also legally binds wealthy countries to contribute by 2020 $100 billion to poorer countries to um, transition to alternative uh, energy economies. And they also pledge another $100 billion per year through 2025, so that's $600 billion pledge. And so those two things are good things. Um, The problems with that are one, 600 billion sounds like a lot of money, but that is for basically the entire world to adapt to climate change, to deal with storms, to deal with loss and damage associated with storms and to transition their economies from fossil fuels to alternative energy. Um, If you look at just one storm, for example, Katrina is estimated to have cost $250 billion. This is $600 billion for the entire world for six years. Um, The other problem is that the climate plans, while each country has to submit a plan, they don't necessarily have to enforce their plan. They also, um, there is debate as to whether the agreement inherently implies that the plans need to be improved every five years. Um, So, for example, Saudi Arabia's plan um, reduces their domestic greenhouse gas emissions uh, in in the short term by putting in place alternative energy, but that's contingent on using alternative energy domestically so that they can produce more oil to export internationally. So their reduced greenhouse gas emissions are contingent upon increased oil production. In addition, even though 
the United Nations determined, and so have many other agencies, that to avoid the worst of climate crisis, three-fourths of known fossil fuels need to stay in the ground. Nowhere in the agreement are the words fossil fuel, oil, coal, or natural gas spoken. There is nothing in this agreement that deals with production. It deals exclusively with emissions. That's an enormous problem. Another major issue that made the news uh, this year was um, international oil and gas company ExxonMobil. Um, it's currently being investigated for its role in funding climate denial research and lying to the public and investors about risk the company faced. Uh, what are your thoughts on this case? This is an incredible accomplishment of investigative journalism, first of all, that uncovered uh, incredibly damning evidence, which was that ExxonMobil's own scientists in the 1970s confirmed that burning fossil fuels leads to um, climate change. And they even had an intern in 1972 who determined that 80% of fossil fuels need to stay in the ground to avoid damaging climate change, which is exactly what we're talking about now 30 years later. Actually, we're, we, don't even, we don't even always talk about 80%, which we should, which means that if we had, in 1972, started putting in place the policies that we know we need now, we would be in a very different world than we're living in. But instead of moving on that science, Exxon um, stopped its investigations and intentionally started arguing the opposite, went into the public domain to say there's no such thing as climate change, um, funded climate deniers and the climate denial movement, intentionally set about trying to create uncertainty around climate change. But worse than that, uh, worked within the federal government, particularly during the Bush administration, to change public policy so that we would not take action on climate change. The good news is that the Department of Justice, former Department of Justice um, attorneys who worked on the tobacco litigation are looking at this case and are looking at a RICO suit because the assumption is that Exxon wasn't alone in its scientific investigations and that uh, probably other oil companies were also aware and chose intentionally to withhold this information uh, from the public um, and as well as their investors. And then also the state of New York, where ExxonMobil is based, is also conducting um, a series of investigations. So hopefully what this means is that Exxon will face um, legal and financial costs and the whole oil industry will. So recently, the CNN reported that BP settles final Gulf oil spill claims for about $20 billion. And this is what a lot of your research has been on, and you went in. And um, also, right before we talked to you last time, you were about to publish a report for Harper's about your experience aboard the U.S. Navy research vessel, Atlantis. Um, and then can you just give us kind of a, you know, a quick update on what the major developments have been? Um, a settlement was reached with the U.S. government for a total of $20 billion, and that's settling all of BP's outstanding litigation um, with the federal government and with most state governments and with many individual private parties. $20 billion is a lot of money. Nobody would say it's not a lot of money. 
but it's only a fraction of what BP should be held liable for. And I did an analysis, just a straight application of the law. BP spilled this amount of oil. It harmed you know, this number of species that have been calculated. It caused this level of economic damage that have been calculated. And I easily came up with $200 billion for what the toll should be. And part of that is that we have a law um, that um, requires that in the wake of an oil spill, and this was a law written as a result of the Exxon Valdez oil spill, the Oil Pollution Act by George Bush Sr., my you know, Republican um, president, that says there's a if, if you spill oil, you have to clean it up and you have to put everything back the way it was before. And there's a per barrel of oil fee. Um, just looking at what the per barrel of oil fee should have been, that alone should have been in the range of 14 to 17 billion dollars just for the oil. Forget, you know, a feather on a bird or an individual who was economically harmed. And of course, there were many, many, many of both. Um, and it should be a large number because it's the largest offshore drilling oil spill in world history. And I was, you know, as you mentioned, in a submarine at the bottom of the ocean at the site of the BP oil spill. And there is, you know, a enormous field of oil that is now lying on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico like a carpet. So there is um, continued damage in the Gulf of Mexico and BP basically paid what it estimated that it would pay. So all total, all of its costs are about $60 billion, which is basically exactly what it estimated its costs would be, not a coincidence. And so it's definitely suffered financially and there are many people whose lives and livelihoods and way of life ended as a result of this disaster. Um, certainly many species and or uh, creatures within species. Um, and it's not, it wasn't out of line to think that a company that caused this type of damage and knowingly caused this type of damage should also no longer exist as a company. But that's not, uh, not the outcome. Antonio Yuhas is a leading oil and energy expert. She's a policy analyst, author, and investigative journalist. She's author of three books, Black Tide, The Tyranny of Oil, and The Bush Agenda. Thanks for speaking with us, Antonio. Thanks so much for having me. This year, we also traveled back to June 1969. That night, at the New York City Stonewall Inn, the LGBT movement was born. Here's a clip of that moment from Michael Shirker's oral history. I remember on that night, I was in a gay bar, a women's bar, called Cookies. We were coming out of the gay bar, going toward 8th Street. And that's when we saw everything happen, blasting away, people getting beat up, police coming from every direction, uh, hitting women as well as men with their nightsticks, uh, gay men running down the street with blood all over their face. We decided right then and there, whether we scared or not, we didn't think about it, we just jumped in. The media covered the riot extensively. The Daily News featured it on its front page. There were reports on all the local television and radio stations. By the next day, graffiti calling for gay power had appeared on buildings and sidewalks all over the West Village. Hastily worked up flyers distributed on street corners touted the night as the hairpin drop heard round the world. And the next night, thousands of men and women converged on the West Village. They came here, back to the stone wall, to see what would happen next. 
While trash cans were set on fire, stones were thrown, and sporadic fighting broke out between police and gays, the more than 400 riot police milling around the village ensured that the previous night's violence would not be repeated. But on this night, for the first time, gay couples could be seen walking hand in hand or kissing in the streets. Just by being there, surrounded by reporters and photographers and onlookers, thousands of men and women were proclaiming to themselves and the rest of the world that they were gay. And the crowds grew and came back the next night and for one more night the following week. What happened here on those nights helped to usher in a new era, both personally and politically, for gay men and lesbians. And now we hear from Aisha Rashid, a queer activist in New Orleans and a board member at Southerners on New Ground. Southerners on New Ground is a regional LGBTQ movement organization that works on intersecting oppression and works for collective liberation for all people, um, but with a specific understanding that there are level there are ways in which oppression is threaded together in a quilt. So race oppression, gender oppression, and economic oppression all work together to keep us from having the kind of free and liberated lives that all people deserve. Racism it still affects queer people. The uh, immigration policies significantly affect queer people and and our liberation is interconnected. It's not just about getting specific rights for a certain subset of people, but it's about saying like, how are all of these things, how does capitalism, how does white supremacy, how does um, patriarchy, how do those things work together to keep all of us, no matter who we love or how we present in the world or how we wear our genders or what color our skin is, we are all oppressed by these systems. I think mainly folks learning how to organize more deeply and to connect each other, right? So I think, you know, the immigration fights, right, and the ways in which um, LGBTQ people across the South and all over the country saw their, under, understood the question of who gets imprisoned and for what and why to be related to them, right? So that we all suffer when um, folks who are undocumented are being incarcerated for existing, that we all need to stand up against that. And so the Not One More campaigns and the fights to shut down ICE and the fights to, um, to change the way that U.S immigration policy functions um, were really important moments for queer people and for our membership base in the South. There were a lot of folks who did, you know, some civil disobedience work, shut down bridges, you know, protested at ICE facilities um, and saw their power and like had an opportunity to like flex that power. And I think that's really important. Um, and then similarly, there's the queer leadership that's happening in the Black Lives Matter movement and how, again, we're seeing, you know, queer folks of all different races standing up and knowing that black and brown lives can't pay the price for white folks to feel like they're a little bit freer. And so I think that that, you know, really understanding the importance of standing in solidarity and unity with each other um, and showing up for those fights and showing up and also respecting the importance of leadership that is most impacted so that you're seeing black leaders stepping up and um, you know folks with more privilege and access understanding that their role is not to always be in front of the mic but to support the folks who are most directly impacted in speaking their truths and being out in the front and telling their stories and fighting for the liberation for all of us right so I think those are really important I mean the marriage decision is really important um, and, you know, I think I wrote about it at the time that 
it's it's hard, right? It's complicated because on the one hand, I, I think I said that it was justice and not liberation, right? Justice is saying that why should I be treated differently because of who I am and who I love? If there are going to be rules, they should be applied fairly across. But justice is, shouldn't be mistaken for liberation. Liberation would say that why do we have these systems in the first place and why do we sort people and why do we tell people or um, control how you can organize your life and who your family is based on like who who your birth family is and who you legally attach yourself to right like why is our state even involved in that but at the same time knowing that you know there are folks for whom marriage creates more opportunity for them to be able to organize their families to be able to be safe from state intervention we should all have that we shouldn't have to rely on marriage to protect us from oppression but i'm grateful for the folks who for whom that is going to give them greater economic stability or greater security or more freedom to define who their family is. So in the marriage conversations, I think what we had is an opportunity to complicate the conversation. And I think that that's really important. Um, we got to be able to say, especially to white gay men who may not have already always been seeing their fates as intertwined with, you know, trans women of color and um, black lesbians in the South to say like, we are actually interconnected and you um, should not take this moment of marriage and decide that we've just won. Like everything is fine, all is well. Understand that this is, this is one piece and there's so much oppression in so many ways that we need to be fighting together. Aisha Rashid is a board member at Southerners on New Ground and a public education advocate who lives in New Orleans. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. To find out more, visit our website at radioproject.org. That's also where you can download past shows and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Jasmine Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.